0: Hello, I'm Geoffrey Wyatt, Senior Astronomy Educator here at Sydney Observatory, and I'm going to be talking to you about what's visible in the sky this month for January. Of course, there are a few things that you need to help you with your sky tour. That is, of course, a printed map that you can download from www.sydneyobservatory.com and, of course, even better still would be the Australian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Long. Now, of course, at this time of year, it's lovely and warm, so make time to go outside, sit on a rug, look up and enjoy the sky. There are so many things up there, even though we don't get a terribly good view of the Milky Way at this time of year. What I'd like you to do is to wait until it's lovely and dark, go outside and find yourself as high a clear position as possible. Now, I appreciate you can't all do this. Some of us live at the bottom of the hill like I do, but if you can find a relatively clear view of the sky so you can never eat soggy wheat bix, I beg your pardon, so that you can see north, east, south and west, our cardinal directions, and if you can find your way around, it'll make things so much easier and more interesting for you. We're going to start off uh, our tour this month by looking towards the east, fairly high up, about 45 degrees. So, 45 degrees is going to be halfway up as we look at it, and it's quite obvious what we're going to start looking at, the brightest star in the night sky, and that is Sirius, the dog star. Now, of course, 45 degrees up is relatively easy. I think most of us could figure out halfway up. But, actually, there are a few things that you can do to help find your way around. Yes, you do need to find your cardinal directions, And quite often in astronomy we call that the azimuth. So we can talk about an azimuth of 90 degrees being east, an azimuth of uh, 180 degrees, which is south, 270 degrees west, and zero, of course, north. So we can talk about our direction from north in terms of degrees going uh, from north to east. That'll help us around the ground. But in terms of altitude, how high up? Well, degrees is what we use, but sometimes that can be difficult. However, if you hold your pinky at arm's length, for most people, an outstretched pinky is about one degree or twice the size of the full moon. Now, 45 degrees above the horizon, that's 45 pinkies. That'll take a while. But there are other things that you can do as well. For most, adults, the average sized adult, a clenched fist at arm's length is about 10 degrees. If you spread your pinky to your thumb, so an open handspan, that's about 15 degrees. Of course, if you're a bigger fellow like I am, it's more, and if you're smaller, it's a little bit less, but on average about 15 degrees. So start off, look due east, three handspans up. The brightest star in the night sky, Sirius, the dog star. Sirius is an intriguing star because it is the brightest star in the night sky. It's relatively close and relatively big, but it's actually a combination. You see, we have an unusual view of things. All stars look like twinkling pinpoints of light. They look like they're the same distance away from us. They're not. Stars are, of course, big hot balls of gas. Some of them are much bigger than others. Some of them are much closer than others. Sirius is relatively close at 8.7 light years. That means you see it tonight as it really was 8.7 years ago. You see, you're looking back in the time. That's relatively close. There are other objects out there that we can see with the naked eye, up to, just on, 2 million light years away, but that's best seen from the northern hemisphere and that's the great galaxy in Andromeda or M31. So Sirius is close, it's relatively big, it's about twice the size of the Sun as well, so it's a young, hot, bright star that's nice and close. Sirius is the brightest star in the constellation of Canis Major the Big Dog. And Canis Major is relatively easy to see as a stick figure of a dog. If you look at a star map you'll see very elaborate drawings and, to be honest, you've got no chance of seeing anything like that. The best way to see this constellation is to ask your all three to four year old to draw a stick figure of a dog. Then, using Sirius as the chest of the dog, look for it rising in the east and hey presto, you'll see a very simple dog figure. Sirius is also interesting because it has with it a very, very small companion. And astronomers, look, to be honest, sometimes lack a little imagination, so they don't have terribly fancy names for a lot of objects. Because this star sits right next to Sirius, it's called Sirius B. And Sirius B is what we think will happen to the Sun in a couple of billion years from now when it dies. You see, Sirius B is a white dwarf. It's nestled in the glare of Sirius itself, or Sirius A, and is almost impossible to see. However, until 2019, Sirius B is about as far away from Sirius A as it can possibly get. So if you have a nice telescope, you won't be able to do it in binoculars, you may just be able to split this tiny, tiny leftover ember of a dead star called a white dwarf nestled in the glare of Sirius. And it's well worth a look. It was discovered in the 1840s by Friedrich Bessel, who was looking at the gravitational wobble of Sirius. Now, apparently some indigenous communities also looked at uh, Sirius because it's rising in the east at this time of year, signalled to them that now is a good time to go and look for tasty young dingo pups. Uh, Good for them, not so good for the dingoes, I'm afraid. But that highlights an important use of stars. You see, just about every culture on this planet looks at the stars for two reasons. Well, three at a stretch. To work out the time of year. So to use them as a calendar, precisely what the Egyptians did in the past and what the indigenous cultures did, or some indigenous cultures of this land did in looking for dingo pups, and for navigation to find your way from place to place, which was very important if you were finding your way across deserts or plains or indeed seas and oceans. But people also used the stars and the pictures that they would make up, constellations, to educate and entertain one another. You see, depending on your age and your eyesight, you can see around two to 3,000 stars from a very, very dark, clear location. In the middle of the cities or larger towns, not so many. In fact, in one city that I like to go to, and that is Tokyo, on occasion I'm able to see one star. So pollution does affect us somewhat horribly from this beautiful natural resource of the night sky. But people would make up stories in the past about heroes and villains, battles and adventures, and they would use these to educate and entertain each other, teach their children morals and all sorts of wonderful things. So the stars have been useful for us for many thousands of years. Once you've had a good look at Canis Major, the large dog, and Sirius, oh, which of course shares its name with the ship, HMS series to come to Australia as part of the First Fleet and more recently sharing its name with one of the characters in the Harry Potter series of novels. Once you've had a look at that, I now want you to turn towards your left ever so slightly because we're going to look for the rising constellation of Orion the Hunter in the northeast. It's relatively high up and it's very close to Canis Major, as you would expect. Candace Major, the big dog, is one of the hunting dogs of Orion the Hunter. For most Australians, Kiwis and South Africans, uh, look, it's probably easy to say, can you see the saucepan? Now, the constellations have been named predominantly from the Northern Hemisphere. In fact, they've all been named from the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, But in the Southern Hemisphere, we see them the right way up. Well, those in the north would say that they see them the right way up and we see them upside down, but eh, it's all relative. As we look at Orion in the southern hemisphere, Kiwis, Australians and South Africans don't see Orion the hunter as easily as they see a saucepan. So look for three stars in a lovely straight line, fairly close together, and I want you to picture that those three stars make up the base of a saucepan. From one corner you go up to top of the saucepan, so it's just a single star, go back down, along the base, up the other side, where you'll see three more star-like objects that form the handle. What you're really looking at is the belt of Orion, sitting very close to the celestial equator, and the sword of Orion. If you have a decent pair of binoculars, or indeed a small telescope, have a look at the middle star-like object of the handle of the saucepan. And what you're looking at there is a cloud of gas and dust, perhaps 20,000 times the size of our solar system, and you are, in effect, looking into the maternity ward of stars because you are seeing baby stars being born at this very minute. It is one of the most beautiful sights in the night sky, but you do need a very good pair of binoculars or a small telescope. The object itself is called M42, meaning it was the 42nd object in a catalogue developed by Charles Messier who created a list of red herrings, things not to look at if you were looking for a comet. And this was the 42nd object. And it really is, at this time of year, perfectly placed and absolutely beautiful. M42 is also, of course, better known as the Orion Nebula, the word nebula is simply Latin for cloud, because as astronomers start to look through their telescopes, these things look like clouds. And they are, of course, the birth and, later, the death of stars. From the source the base of which sits on the celestial equator, drop down ever so slightly, and you'll see one of the few stars in the night sky to show any sort of identifiable colour. And what you're looking at there is a star with a spectacular Arabic name, which has been mispronounced so long that we now call it Betelgeuse. It was originally something along the lines of Abtelyaza, meaning uh, shoulder of the giant. Betelgeuse is a truly big star, but it's right on the cusp of being a truly spectacular star as well. You see, it's 600 light years away, so it's not exactly close. It's a thousand times the diameter of the Sun and several times more massive. How massive it is, however, there's still a bit of debate about that, but it's on the limit. It may actually, at the end of its life, which it's in its final stages now, catastrophically collapse and explode as a supernova. We don't know if that is the case or whether or not it'll simply become a red supergiant, shed its outer layers and die a graceful, beautiful death to form something called a planetary nebula and expose what's, if you like, the leftover thermonuclear heart, a white dwarf, just like Sirius B that I mentioned at the start of the podcast. So, Betelgeuse is dying And the typical colour of a large dying star is red. Don't expect to see traffic light red. Uh, It is, in fact, more like a golden orangey pinky reddish. If you can see anything that's bright and of those colours, you've found Betelgeuse. As we leave Orion the Hunter, who came to a fairly sticky end at the sting of the giant scorpion, Scorpius, we head towards the north, but down a little bit, to about 38, 40 degrees or so above the north by northeast horizon, and there's another slightly orange-reddish-looking star called Aldebaran, and this is the brightest star in the constellation of Taurus the Bull, which is perhaps the oldest of all the constellations. You see, constellations have been around for a very long time. In the 2nd century AD, Claudius Ptolemy created a catalogue of constellations, about 48 of them, and we've been adding to it ever since. Now, these constellations have come to us via uh, ancient Arabic cultures. They've then gone from there to... Uh, Greek cultures, and then after the Renaissance they've spread out and, if you like, dominated our world view of the night sky. So we've largely ignored cultures from other areas of the world. But Taurus is generally accepted to be one of the older of all the constellations because it's a beast of burden, if you like, in its barest form. But according to some mythology, it was, in fact, Jupiter, king of the gods, in the form of a bull, who was carrying a young maiden on his back to a nearby island. What a bizarre story. Anyway, our Aldebaran looks as though it's part of a, a V-shaped group of stars pointing back down towards the horizon. It's actually between us and the rest of the stars in that V, which is actually a group of young stars called the Hyades, and that's an open cluster. Some people think it's a really cool open cluster. I don't, because... Right next door, there's an even better one. I'll come to that in just a moment. But if you can see the upside-down V with the fairly bright orange-reddish star uh, at the end of the V, it's the eye of the bull. And then, of course, it has two very long horns. You see, the longer the horns, the more fertile he was, according to mythology, pointing back down to the horizon on the northeast uh, towards the constellation of Gemini. But Gemini's just too low for us to see at the moment. Once you've found that V-shape and the bright star Aldebaran, we then head around toward our north ever so slightly, dropping down, and you'll see a remarkable group of stars. This group of stars is called M45, the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, and there's the rub. It's very, very strange that so many people around the world refer to this group of stars as a group of sisters. They are, in fact, an example of an open cluster. This open cluster is a a group of very young stars. They've been born, if you like, from the same cloud of gas and dust, at the same distance. They have the same chemical composition. Therefore, the only difference between the constituent stars is mass. Oh, and by the way, guess what factor is, in fact, the most important when looking at the life of a star? Yes, it's mass. And as a result, open clusters like these are particularly favoured by astronomy examiners when setting exams for students. So astronomy teachers love them, astronomy students can almost guarantee that they'll be in their exam. This particular cluster is typically regarded as being one of the finest in the night sky. If you see a long exposure photo of it, the stars, and there's quite a few of them there, well, they can only see seven to nine with the naked eye, seem to be embedded in a beautiful blue haze. Well, this cloud that they're embedded in, this nebulosity that we can see, is actually not related to them. Uh, spectroscopic studies have revealed that the cloud is moving in the opposite direction to the stars and it just happens to be a happy coincidence that they're in the same line of sight that we see. Anyway, getting back to the story of the Seven Sisters... Why are they seven sisters? Why not, for example, seven hills of Rome or seven dolphins swimming if you're a Pacific Islander culture or something like that? But universally, they re- tend to be referred to as seven sisters. Indeed, some indigenous cultures of Australia refer to them as seven sisters where one of the sisters has become lost. And it's a fabulous story of the Gutara and the Minima Burney. This group of stars, the Pleiades, is well worth a look at in a pair of binoculars, even if you have to borrow them from your next-door neighbour. Continue around from Taurus to Bull with its little cluster of stars, the Pleiades. We go past the very, very difficult constellation Aries the Ram to see. Uh, You can really only see two to three bright stars in Aries, and remember Aries is the, the ram that produced the golden fleece that Jason and the Argonauts spent so much time searching for. We then pass Pisces, which is almost impossible to see, especially getting down low in the, in the northwestern sky, wrapped around the constellation of Pegasus, once again too low for us to really see. We continue around towards the west, and the brightest star you'll see ever so slightly south of west at this time of year, about 30 degrees above the horizon, that is, of course, two handspans, is Fomolo. Fomolo is the brightest star in the constellation of Pisces astrinus. It is the southern fish, not the constellation of Pisces, which is the zodiac constellation. But it's just another fish. Uh, The star Fomolo represents the mouth of the fish, and according to legend, it's consuming the water that's flowing from the jug Carried by Aquarius, the water carrier. Look, I can't really see a fish here, and you may not be able to either. But if you've got your star map, uh, you can see it's an unusual looking shape. But to me, it looks like a paisley swirl. So dig out one of Dad or Granddad's ties and have a look for some paisley swirls, and you may just be able to see Pisces astrinus, the southern fish. Right next door to it, there are two fairly bright stars in the constellation of Grus the Crane. Look, Effectively, it looks like a a bit of a cross, and then from the midpoint of the cross, there are two trailing legs behind it. So what you are seeing is a crane with a lovely long neck, relatively short wings, I'd have to say, with a couple of feet trailing behind it in flight, although I'd say that one is rather difficult to see. From Grus and Pisus Astrinus, head back up to about 58 degrees, so 60 degrees, that's four handspans, so we're up a fair way. There's only one relatively bright star there, and that's the star Achenar. Achenar is the end of the line in more ways than one. You see, according to the classical mythologies from the north, it represents the end of the constellation Eridanus the River, But, to some indigenous culture in this beautiful land of ours, it represents one of two cooking stars for people who have not been too nice, who come to a fairly unsavoury end, if you catch my meaning at the end of their life. You see, although we can't see the beautiful glow of the Milky Way at this time of year, as long as there's no light pollution and there's no moon, fairly close to this bright star Alpha Eridani or Achenar, you may be able to see two glowing, fuzzy, hazy, milky blobs in the sky. Those two blobs are, of course, two of our nearby neighbouring galaxies. They're not the closest galaxies to us, but we can actually see those with the naked eye. But these two galaxies are very, very close at just 160 and 201,000 light years, respectively. Named in honour of the first man to almost sail around the world, and that is, of course, Ferdinand Magellan. So we call them the Large Magellanic Cloud and the Small Magellanic Cloud, and they are completely separate galaxies to us. They're moving toward us because our galaxy, the Milky Way, is the local bully on the block and is, in fact, cannibalising both of these two smaller galaxies. These galaxies, according to some Indigenous culture, represent some brothers who watch over people and take the bad people at the end of their life to uh, Achenar and nearby uh, Canopus, where they are, well, cooked and eaten. So, ew, not a nice way to go. However, the clouds of Magellan, absolutely beautiful to look at, especially when you consider what they are. Galaxies at 160 and 201,000 light-years away. We're now almost facing the south, although we're up fairly high. If you look down and try and find the Southern Cross, you don't have much chance at this time of year. The Southern Cross will be lost in the glow of the horizon, more than likely behind a tree or your next-door neighbour's shed. So you're not going to see the Southern Cross at this time of year, nor will you see the two bright pointers that help you identify it as being the real Southern Cross. What you are likely to come across at this time of year... Uh, one or two false crosses, not really constellations, so we call them asterisms. Unfortunately, there are quite a few of them. The main one is actually an asterism made up of stars from two constellations, Vale of the Sails and Carina the Keel, as we head around towards the southeast. It looks like a cross. It's no wonder that people confuse it and think it is the real Southern Cross. But it's bigger, it's nowhere near as bright, and it doesn't have the two bright pointer stars. But this false cross indicates a fairly typical problem, and that is, we love the Southern Cross in the Southern Hemisphere, but quite often we're not so good at identifying it or waiting until it's in the right position for us to see. By the way, Vela and Carina used to be part of a much larger constellation called Argo Navis, the ship that carried Jason and the Argonauts in search of the Golden Fleece, which of course relates back to Gemini the Twins, of course they are on the ship, and Aries the Ram that produced the Golden Fleece. The constellation was too big and the International Astronomical Union met in 1930 and broke it up into four smaller constellations, Vela, Carina, Puppis and Pyxis. What you will see above the false cross at about 60 degrees almost above the horizon, is the second brightest star in the night sky. This star is called Canopus, or Alpha Carinae. It is very, very bright, and not far, really, from where we started off at Canis Major, and its bright star, Sirius. So don't get the two confused. Canopus, second brightest star in the night sky, inherently a far, far brighter star than Sirius the Dog Star, It's just that it's so much further away. Oh, the other thing about Canopus is that it has a rather interesting little name and story that goes with it from our friends almost due north of here, and that is from Japan. You see, as sailors, fishermen in particular, would sail out looking for their stock of fish from Japan, as they came further south, they would see this very bright Canopus pop up above their horizon. Such a bright star makes you feel good. I mean, after all, we all love the brightness and the sparkle of diamonds, and this was like a diamond in the sky. So Canopus coming up over the southern horizon as fishermen would come south would make them happy and feel good. If you're happy and feel well, the story goes that you live a little longer. And the Japanese name, or the old Japanese name for this star, is Nagaiki, meaning long life. Obviously, there's a flaw to this logic for all of us living in the southern hemisphere that suit all the time, eh, but it doesn't matter. Oh, and each year there's quite a few photographic competitions in Japan to actually photograph Nagaiki or Canopus as it becomes visible ever so briefly above their southern horizon. But to us, it's pretty much there uh, throughout summer and easy to see because it is so bright. As we come back around towards the east, you would have noticed that Sirius, the dog star, has risen a little bit higher than where we first started. We haven't talked about terribly much that's visible high overhead at this time of year. Well, because there's nothing terribly bright. All the action is around the horizon to within about 50 to 60 degrees. You see, the best time to get the most stars in that beautiful Milky Way is in the middle of winter, which fortunately we're still many months away from, or very early in the morning at this time of year. One of the better parts of the Milky Way is now rising in the east, but we can't see it overhead at the moment. You'll have to wait several more hours before you can see the summer Milky Way. Let's have a look at the phases of the Moon for January 2012. First quarter Moon will be on January the 1st at 515 P.M. Of course, that's Australian Eastern Daylight Time or Daylight Saving Time. Full Moon will be on January the 9th at 6.30pm. Last Quarter on January the 16th at 8.08pm. New Moon on January the 23rd at 6.39pm. And First Quarter, uh, the second for the month, on January 31st at 3.10pm. Now, for a few of the events that we're going to talk about in January, we need to mention the relative brightness scale, if you like, or magnitude scale, based on the Pogson ratio. This has been around for a long time. In fact, in its entirety, almost 2,000 years, going back to the time of uh, the great astronomer Ptolemy. But the thing is, of course, most scientists, well, all scientists, love to put numbers or values to things. So we can say, hey, this one's bigger than that one, this one's, you know more dense than that one, or in this particular case, this one's brighter than that one. So we're going to use a scale which goes from... Well, it actually goes in the opposite to what you might expect. So when we talk about small numbers, uh, like 1 or 2, these objects are brighter than objects that have a brightness of, say, 3, 4, 5, or whatever. Now, most people can see stars down to magnitude probably 5.5, As you get older, you don't see as well. This scale used to start at zero, but it's now been extended into the negatives. So throughout January, for example, Jupiter will get to minus 2.4 magnitude. This is an apparent magnitude, as you see it with the naked eye. So that's very, very bright. But Venus, on the other hand, gets down to minus 4.4. Now, 4.4... 2.4, it doesn't seem that much difference. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. It's actually a logarithmic scale. And then when we actually look at it, uh, that difference of two magnitudes means that Venus is about six times brighter than Jupiter. You don't have to remember all that sort of stuff. All you need to know is large positive numbers, very, very dim, remembering that you can only see down probably to about magnitude 5.5. Negative numbers, very, very bright. Uh, The Sun, I forget the exact number, is about minus 27 or something like that. And of course, you all know, don't look at the Sun. But Venus, minus 4.4, brightest object in the night sky after the Moon. Some of the key highlights for the January nights. Throughout the month, the planet Jupiter will dominate the night sky, starting off in the constellation of Pisces, before moving across into Aries, Jupiter is very conspicuous because of its astounding brightness. Uh, for those that like the Pogson ratios or the brightness in magnitude, it's minus two point four. Uh, that's as a result of it being relatively close, at just seven hundred and fifty million kilometres away. Look, you really can't miss it. It's the brightest object in the sky, uh, apart from uh, the Moon and Venus. Of course, we're talking at night. Now, on January the 2nd, just after sunset, which is at 8.10pm, uh, look towards the north-northwest. About 40 degrees up, you'll see a 60% gibbous waxing moon. Uh, gibbous, of course, means more than half, less than full. Waxing means, of course, it's getting bigger. Now, it's going to be in the constellation of Pisces the fish, and Jupiter will be just 9 degrees above and to the right. Now, on the next night, the Moon will have moved enough so that Jupiter is now above and to the left. And this is a good opportunity for you to measure just how much the Moon moves from day to day. You're simply going to use Jupiter as a signpost. Now, Venus is also very nicely placed for the month. As we know, Venus, goddess of love, starts off very low on the west just after sunset in the constellation of Capricornus and then moves towards Aquarius by mid-month. Now, it's setting by about 10.15pm due west and is very, very bright at minus 4.4 magnitude. Now, that makes it about six times brighter than Jupiter. But don't leave it until just before it sets because, as we know, anything close to the horizon is going to look dim because of the atmospheric pollution and interference with the light. So... Shortly after sunset, wait till it's dark, look west, the very bright object is Venus. Shortly after sunset on January the 26th, the 10% waxing crescent moon will be 7 degrees, uh, almost directly below Venus, and this is a very nice photographic opportunity, so make sure you go out and have a look, and why not send your photos to us at the observatory, we might put them onto our blog. Now, you need to keep an eye on Venus as it moves uh, towards its very important date uh, with the Sun on the 6th of June. Yes, it's still some months away, but this year on the 6th of June will be the transit of Venus when Venus moves in front of the Sun. We're going to talk about this pretty much every month because it is such a significant event, and if you miss it, you have to wait until December 2117, so more than 100 years away. So this is the last, if you like, cycle that Venus has before this very important date. At the moment, throughout January, it's about 36 degrees away from the Sun and it can only ever move out to about 46 degrees, which it will do by uh, March, before swinging back for this important date on June the 6th. Special events for the mornings of January. We have the... Mercury, the fleet-footed god. Look, it may be visible early in the month, low in the east, just ahead of sunrise. I hope you notice I said May. It's pretty hard to find. It's not all that bright. And Again, for those of you that want a number, it's at minus 0.37. But look, it's only 18 degrees ahead of the sun. So it's going to be hard to find. It's going to be in the constellation of Ophiuchus before moving into Sagittarius. It is not all that bright, but it's about the brightest object in that part of the sky. Um, For a signpost, if you can find the constellation of Scorpius, look for the bright star in that Antares, which is the reddish looking one, and drop down. You'll find Mercury about 15 to 20 degrees below and just a tad to the right from Antares. It'll be hard to find in morning twilight, but well worth a peek. Good luck. Now, Mars. Although Mars is rising quite late, uh, at about 11pm throughout the month, you need to give it a few hours for it to get up uh, high enough away from the horizon, so it's effectively a morning object. Look, it's disappointingly dim, but nonetheless it's, uh, it's always something that people like to see, and it's going to be in the area between the constellations of Virgo and Leo. It's always good to use a a signpost to help find it as well because, as I've said, unfortunately it's not very bright. The best chance for this will be on the 14th of January when the waning gibbous moon, uh, so we can see about 72% on this particular day, uh, will be just 9 degrees above and to the left, as long as you're looking towards the the northeast. Although dim, uh, Mars is fairly conspicuous by its colour. Now, we say it's the red planet, but don't expect traffic light red. It's anywhere from rusty reddish to goldish to yellowish. Um, Look, effectively, anything that's not blue or white in that particular area. Uh, Also visible in the morning sky throughout January is the planet Saturn. Now, it's not very bright, but it is well worth a look, and it's going to be in the constellation of Virgo all month. And on the 17th of January... Uh, Look towards the east from about 3 a.m. onwards and you'll be able to see the waning crescent moon. Well, it's just a smidge below half a moon uh, at 47%. And um, the moon will be about 5 degrees above and to the right of this beautiful ringed planet. Even if you have a small telescope or a good pair of binoculars, mount them onto a tripod and have a look at Saturn. I'm sure you won't be disappointed. There's just one other significant event for us in January, and that is of course perihelion, which will occur on January the 5th at twelve moon, daylight saving time. This is our closest approach all year to the Sun. It is not the reason why we have seasons, of course, and it's hot in the southern hemisphere. The seasons are determined by the tilt of the Earth. But on the 5th of January we come closer to the sun than we do at any other time of the year, at just ninety-eight per cent the average distance, which we call the astronomical unit. So there you have the sky highlights for January 2012. Don't forget you can download a printable map at our website, www.sydneyobservatory.com.au. And of course, for the complete picture of everything that's in the sky, you need the 2012 version of the Australasian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Lom. It's available online from our Powerhouse Publishing or at Sydney Observatory, and of course all major good bookstores. I'm Geoffrey Wyatt, Senior Astronomy Educator here at Sydney Observatory, and I hope you enjoyed the tour.